As preservationists, we here at PreserveCast are usually concerned with the physical history, what we can know from the cold, hard facts. But seeing as how it's October and Halloween is just around that darkened corner, we thought we'd talk a little bit about haunted history. Author Colin Dickey joined me to talk about the history of ghost stories and share what we can learn from the places that scare us. Don't be frightened. This is the PreserveCast Spooktacular. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Colin Dickey, who is the author of Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places, along with two other works of fantastic nonfiction, Cranioclipti and Afterlives of the Saints. He's currently writing a book on conspiracy theories and other delusions entitled The Unidentified, which is forthcoming in 2019. Colin has been referred to by one reviewer as a mad genius, and he's going to talk to us today in particular about his book, Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places. As we approach Halloween, we wanted to talk with Colin about the history of haunted places and some of the things that he's uncovered. Colin, it's a, a real pleasure to have you on PreserveCast today. Thank you so much for having me on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? We love to start these conversations by sort of setting the table and, and getting a sense for who we're talking to. How do you get into this line of work? What took you down the path of starting to write about haunted history? You know, I think I've always been fascinated with ghosts and ghost stories in haunted houses. I grew up in San Jose, California, which is the home of the Winchester Mystery House, which is regularly referred to as one of the most haunted houses in the country, and they, you know, they, they do a lot of tours. It's been the, the inspiration for a number of writers and, and other horror novelists. And, and so, you know, I kind of grew up with that as a, as a child, and it kind of always stayed in the back of my mind. And I, you know, read a lot of Stephen King and, and whatnot. And then as I got older and I went into academia, I got a PhD in comparative literature. One of the things I kept finding were, were these kinds of stories that not a lot of people were taking seriously, but but seemed really fascinating to me. I mean, and my first book was about the true stories of several famous people whose, whose heads were stolen in the 19th century, uh, Mozart, Beethoven, Goya, Emanuel Swedenborg, and a bunch of other people. And I thought, what, you know, what is this weird sort of phenomenon that, that nobody seems to really take seriously, but had this very strange impact in the early 19th century? So that that led me down, you know, a kind of bizarre road and researching things like phrenology and, and these kind of sciences that people don't take seriously for good reason because they're, they're bunk. But yet, you know, people at the time certainly took seriously and, and had an impact on our kind of cultural life. So, so when I came back to ghost stories, it was less about our ghosts real, our houses actually haunted, or the flip side, you know, proving that they're not and people who believe in ghosts are fools or anything like that. It was more a question of what does this belief do to our culture? How does it change the way we we approach history? How does it change the way we approach old buildings? How does it change the way we keep alive our past through these stories, which, you know, maybe we're not primed to, to take seriously all the time. 
So, I mean, I think you kind of just explained there and gave us an introduction to what I was going to ask you about next, which is what is Ghostland all about? Uh, I think it's very clear Ghostland is not just a book of scary stories, right? You're trying, uh, attempting, I guess maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, but to kind of lay the table for why we tell these stories, where we tell them, why we tell them, what they're all about, what do they say about us? I mean, is that a fair way to sort of characterize Ghostland? How would you describe the book? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty good characterization. I mean, I was really interested, you know, in, in two real questions with this book is, is first, why do we tell some stories and not others? You know, in, in the United States and North America, for example, one of our kind of most cliched and common ghost stories that we tell is about the haunted Indian burial ground, right? You, you see it in a lot of horror movies, you know, the, the suburban house is haunted because it's built on a haunted Indian burial ground. And, why, why does that story get told with such frequency? Why do we, as particularly non-Indigenous you know, white Americans, why are we so fascinated with this, this aspect of you know, Native American culture that we are both sort of drawn to and yet sort of horrified at the same moment? So those kinds of questions, you know, why these stories and not others, that was one of the main questions I wanted to ask. And the other one was, why some buildings and not others? Why do we fetishize old Victorian mansions? Why are we drawn towards decaying hotels? You know, why are some cities like New Orleans more filled with ghosts than, I don't know, Topeka, Kansas or something? You know, so I, <laughs> I really wanted to kind of push on those two questions and see if I could use these well-worn ghost stories to, to understand a little bit more about American culture and its history. So without giving away too much of the book, because we want people to go out and buy it, and it's a perfect book to read this time of the year. I mean, why, for example, you know, we're on PreserveCast and, you know, a podcast that focuses on preservation and history and architecture and all these sorts of things. Why is it that Victorian architecture always pops up? I mean, Second Empire seems to be the scariest kind of architecture. I'm not really sure why that is, but it seems like every time you see a Second Empire house, or that is sort of the quintessential haunted house. Some of it, I think, is just the sort of nature of changing taste, right? You know, I mean, you know, whatever is the latest and greatest kind of architecture is usually the least likely to be haunted, right? So Victorians weren't haunted in their day. They were haunted as we moved on to other architectural styles. Uh, similarly with uh, haunted insane asylums, right? When you, when you call to mind the kind of archetypal haunted insane asylum, what you'll probably picture is, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners know this, that, you know, the, the Kirkbride design, which was sort of pioneered in the mid-19th century by Thomas Kirkbride, and it's the the asylum with a big clock tower in the front and the, the wings that kind of spread out on either side and it right. you know has all these Victorian touches, right? You know, I mean that that's the quintessential, you know, haunted asylum that you find in H. V. Lovecraft stories and B movies and stuff like that. And that but that really, you know, that got its legacy as being haunted only after reformers had decided that this was actually not you know, a great design for, for mental health and they sort of moved to the cottage plan and other plans. So one way of answering that question, which is just, you know, haunted houses are, are the, the aesthetics that get left behind, right? They are the fashion of yesterday that stubbornly persists and doesn't get torn down. That, I think, runs through a lot of the book. But, I, you know, Victorians, I think, are kind of a really interesting sort of specific example, though, because one of the great things about Victorians is just how many sort of weird nooks and crannies they have, you know, the, the winding staircases and the little pocket rooms and, you know, a kind of floor plan that, that almost invites a kind of more labyrinthine imagination as opposed to something more modernist with big open rooms and that kind of stuff. 
one of the things when I was I was researching the book, I came across this great passage by um, Gaston Bachelard, which I, I hope I'm not mastering his French name there, but, um, you know, in The Poetics of Space, where he talks about, you know, when we're young, we sort of project our imagination onto these hidden spaces and small spaces and, and houses have a tendency to kind of reflect that back to us in the form of almost coming alive or feeling like the eaves and the attics and the stairwells are harboring these kind of imaginative forces that we've uh, projected onto them. That's wonderful. Let me ask you this. Is there a time limit on how long something can be haunted? I mean, what I'm getting at is if the Victorian architecture is what scared us most, do you think that that will sort of phase out over time and that we'll find a, a new scary architecture? Or did the Victorians find something scary that we no longer really focus on so much? Is there, a, is there sort of a time limit on, on that? Have you found that through any of this? Yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah. I mean, I think for Victorians, the things that they found sort of most likely to harbor ghosts were haunted castles and haunted abbeys. I mean, maybe more so in Europe because they have more of those things. But, you know, I mean, you think of the early Gothic tradition, novels like Anne Radcliffe, the, you know, the Mysteries of Udolfo and stuff like that, those all took place in castles. So again, you have this kind of what was antiquated architecture for the Victorians was these kind of older, almost medieval architecture, whereas now we, we're more interested in, you know, Victorian culture. And I mean, it does evolve. I mean, one of the things that didn't make it into the book, but which I wrote about subsequently was a blog some of your listeners may know, uh, which is called McMansion Hell. Yeah, it's based here in Baltimore as well. Yeah, you know, a really fantastic blog where a writer sort of takes apart McMansion architecture and aesthetics and sort of shows how poorly done a lot of these are. And they're sort of put together by contractors rather than architects without much rhyme or reason. And, um, you know, so I, I wrote a piece for Slate.com that connected that that blog and some of the stuff that she talks about in that blog to the blockbuster horror movie Paranormal Activity, you know, which, which again, if you've seen it, is it's a, a horror movie about a haunted McMansion. So these things do shift over time. And, you know, as one thing sort of falls out of favor, something else will, will reemerge as the new haunted space. So the scary McMansions are coming. I can see it. I mean, you kind of can, right? Especially, I mean, especially <laughs> as urbanites are moving to the cities, they're moving out of the suburbs. You know, it's not impossible to imagine a landscape littered with kind of half-occupied McMansions, you know, out in the suburbs that suddenly start to look a lot more malevolent than they did when they were first built. Pretty scary future. Let me ask you another question here. Then this one kind of comes from personal experience. I was a park ranger at Gettysburg for a while. And we would see throngs, you know, hundreds and over a season, thousands of people going on ghost tours there. And, you know, there, of course, there is interest in going on sort of the more standard historical tour, but it seems like there's a much greater appetite to go on the ghost tour, even if the ghost tour is largely made up of, you know, maybe this is coming from a cynical side, but a a lot of half-truths and maybe some fiction. What is it about ghost tours that seems to appeal to the American people in, in a way that maybe sort of the more traditional history doesn't. What, what about it? Is it just because you can spin a better tale or it's easier to be a little bit looser with the facts? What happens? Yeah, I mean, sure. Who doesn't love a good ghost story? Who doesn't love to get the, the hairs on the back of their neck standing up? I think in some ways I would kind of flip that question back around and say, why do we go on ghost tours rather than just going to horror movies? And I think it's because people do want some connection to history. I mean, the, the thing about a ghost tour is it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds. You know, on the one hand, it gives that little thrill, that little 
sense of danger and mystery. But on the other hand, it is a way of connecting with the past, even though, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of them, that connection is, is quite tenuous and somewhat fabricated. But I think what people are looking for in a ghost story is they're looking, or a ghost tour, is they're, they're looking for a sense that the town or the historical site or wherever they are has more to it going on than it appears during the day. I mean, you know, the, the ghost tours in, in New Orleans are, you know, are thronged every night. And I think it's just a lot of tourists and even even some locals, you know, who, who want to imagine not just the New Orleans of today of, you know, crawfish, boils, and whatever else you're supposed to do as a tourist, but also the sense that there is this long history here and you can get a glimpse of it, you know, through a ghost tour. And that perhaps it still resonates to this day. It's sort of touching a piece of the past that's still alive in a, in a way, I suppose. Right. As a historian, as someone who really values, you know, actual documented history, I, I sometimes get a little frustrated with ghost stories where there is so much fabrication, there's so much sort of falsified stuff that's presented as fact. But I, I do try and recognize, and I think it's worth recognizing for preservationists and historians everywhere, is that people come to these stories because they are interested in history and they, they want to be engaged. They want to know more about the past. And it's not really their fault if they're, if they're being sold a bill of goods. They're certainly trying and they're, they're receptive to those kinds of avenues into, into our historical legacy. Well, I think at this point, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about that and and how perhaps ghost stories and hauntings and things like that can play a role in the way that the public perceives and and perhaps even engages in preserving the past. And we'll do that when we're back here on PreserveCast in just a minute. Like any State of the Union... Maryland is home to countless stories of hauntings, ghosts, ghouls, and souls who cannot find rest. (laughs) In keeping with today's theme, let's check out a couple historical haunts in Maryland. One site, whose factual history may be more renowned than the ghosts some have claimed to see within its walls, is the home of Dr. Samuel Mudd. Dr. Mudd famously, or perhaps infamously, assisted John Wilkes Booth during his escape after the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, treating Booth's leg that he broke jumping from the balcony in Ford's theater. Witnesses have seen paranormal phenomena of all sorts, but most often are reports that the cover on Samuel Mudd's old bed gets disturbed overnight as though someone or something had lain there. On the opposite end of the spectrum to the story of the Samuel Mudd House, which is a story born out of the very real sense of unease from the historical assassination and the controversial conviction and imprisonment of the doctor for aiding in a conspiracy, is the story of the Blair Witch Project. Perhaps the most famous haunted tale in Maryland, and the centerpiece of one of the most divisive and iconic horror movies of all time, the legend of the Blair Witch is known to be entirely fabricated. The filmmakers Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez based their fictional story and fictional mythology in the very real and historic town of Burkittsville in Frederick County, Maryland. Despite Burkittsville having a fascinating history in its own right, of Confederate occupation during the Battle of Crampton's Gap, a prelude to the Battle of Antietam, and the use of the two Burkittsville churches as hospitals in the battle's aftermath, the legends of witches and possession 
used in the film are based on a fictitious colonial town meant to be a precursor to Burkittsville. Knowing this, it may not be too surprising for you to know that the residents of Burkittsville have had a troublesome relationship with fans, ghost hunters, and the like. If any of you listeners out there are seeking to track down information about this 100% confirmed fake, invented for viral marketing scary story, please be respectful. And understand that most of the movie was shot in the Seneca Creek and Patapsco Valley State Parks, anyway. From Edgar Allan Poe to the Point Lookout Lighthouse, there are plenty of other tales we could talk about, but, um... uh, I'm spooked out enough as it is. Do you mind if we get back to PreserveCast? Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Colin Dickey, who is the author of Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places, and wanted to talk with Colin a little bit more following up on our conversation from before the break about how a haunting or a building with a ghost story can help in terms of its preservation. Have you come across anything like that? Is there is there some value to this? Because I know that a lot of people working in the field are, are sort of cynical about this, um, and perhaps this is the gateway drug that some folks need to be able to get them into preservation in, in a more traditional sense. Have you found that to be the case? I mean, yeah, definitely. So, you know, as I mentioned, we were talking earlier, I mean, I grew up in San Jose, California, which is the home of Silicon Valley and the tech boom and, you know, Apple and Facebook and all that stuff. And kind of smack dab in the heart of it is this place, the Winchester Mystery House, which is this gloriously strange 161-room Victorian mansion. And, you know, there's this great elaborate story about the daughter-in-law of the guy who founded the Winchester Rifle Company. And she, uh, you know, her, her husband and infant daughter both died. She sort of became convinced she was being haunted by anyone who had ever been killed by a Winchester rifle and that she built this house specifically as a labyrinth to keep the ghosts out. And, you know, that's the story you get on the tour. And, you know, when I started researching the book, I found a good majority of what I just told you is not actually factually correct, you know? And so, so on the one hand, you think, oh, well, you know, why don't they just tell the story of Sarah Winchester as it really happened? But, but then you also have to look at Silicon Valley. I mean, across the street from the Winchester Mystery House is this extremely expensive shopping mall, I think one of the most expensive shopping malls ever when it was built. And the, and the land that the Winchester house sits on is incalculably valuable just based on what's going on in terms of housing and, and real estate in, in San Jose. And so without that story, which, you know, admittedly is, is not entirely factually correct, the, the odds that that beautiful one-of-a-kind singular building would still be standing, I think, are are not great, you know, and, and so, you know, in some cases you see these ghost stories being the things that are keeping these buildings alive. Uh, you know, another another good example is in Lower Manhattan, the Merchant's House, which, again, I mean, you know, how much how much would a building like that go for on, on the real estate market, you know, right now in New York, and yet it's kept alive as a historical museum, and it's buoyed in, in no small part by the ghost tours that, that it provides that make it you know, rightly or wrongly or appropriately or not, you know, sort of make it relevant to a new generation of New Yorkers. 
Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. And I think that it's important for all of us who are involved in history and preservation to remember that, that it, it is a fun way to engage the public and it can save some pretty impressive places, particularly the ones you point out where, but for probably ghost stories, the market would have intervened and we probably would have lost those structures. Let me, let me ask you, in, in, you know, in your research on this book, does any one particular story jump out at you as something quintessential, sort of American haunting, something that is just a perfect example of it or, or something that really uh, stuck with you from your research? You know, one of, the, one of the places I think I found most fascinating um, that I, I knew so little about before I started researching was Richmond, Virginia, which, you know, I think in the very early stages of researching, I, you know, I thought, well, I want... Instead of just a you know haunted house or a hotel, I thought I want like a whole haunted downtown or a haunted sort of neighborhood. So I you know kind of Googled around, and sure enough, the the Richmond neighborhood known as Shaco Bottom gets regularly listed as you know one of the most haunted downtowns in America. And I thought, okay, great, you know I'll go go there, I'll research it, I'll talk to people, I'll see what's up. And the thing about Richmond's Shaco Bottom is all of the ghost stories that I could find on tours and in you know local guidebooks and you know stuff like that the ghosts were all, you know, to put it bluntly, they were all white, right? You know, I mean, this was a downtown that was haunted exclusively by shopkeepers and former brothel workers and guys in bar fights and stuff like that. But Shaco Bottom, again, for, you know, people who know the history, you know, has this other legacy as being the second most trafficked slave trading market in the South after New Orleans, right? And and so, you know, I, there was something really fascinating to me about the way in which a place that had so much genuine and documented historical pain and tragedy and human suffering built into it had through the years kind of unconsciously as a community or perhaps even to some degree consciously had sort of shifted that narrative to being a place where the way of which, you know, historical tragedy was recorded was, was in these sort of side stories about uh, local hotels and local bars and brothels and stuff like that. And that, that I think, speaks to so much of America's sort of use and, and misuse of ghost stories as a means into history as both a way to awaken our sense of the past and also, you know, just as often to kind of sidestep it and erase it. And I think that, you know, in many ways speaks to kind of a larger trajectory of America's understanding of its own past. Yeah. I suppose you have a, a a serious problem with race and inequity if even your ghost stories whitewash your past. Right, exactly, right. You know, I mean, the template of a ghost story is an injustice that hasn't been regressed, right? You know, Hamlet's father's ghost coming back and saying, you know, I was murdered and you need to avenge my death. And so we as a country have enough historical injustices that still could use some redressing. And it's it's interesting to see the way in which ghost stories sort of invoke those and, and also often sidestep them. So I, I probably wouldn't be doing my job unless I asked you this before we sort of move to the conclusion here of this interview, which is, have you ever had a ghost experience? You know, I, I would probably not be doing my job if I didn't try and equivocate or, or uh, <laughs> if, uh, uh, dodge that question a little bit. You know, what I will say, though, is that one of the things I, I kept finding through this book is that a lot of the buildings that we think of as haunted, I, I find so much of that feeling, that, that creepy sense can come from, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of unexpected architecture, right? You know, I mean, buildings that just seem that they were put together oddly or wrongly. I mean, we talked a little bit about 
McMansion. I was going to say, it sounds like you're describing a McMansion, right. but um, keep going. <laughs> but, you know, one of the places where I definitely felt that feeling was in the Moundsville, West Virginia Penitentiary, which is one of the most famous, you know, haunted prisons in the country. And the thing about prison architecture is it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable, right? You know, I mean, the ceilings are too short, the cells are too small, the hallways are too narrow, you know, everything about being in a place like that, even if you're you're not a prisoner, is about making you feel sort of unsettled and uncomfortable. And I, I think being in that penitentiary, and especially once you know the atrocities and terrors that happened in its historical past, I mean, it's an unsettling feeling, even if, you know, rashly I could say, these are not the ghosts of murdered prisoners. These are the legacies of architectural choices. But the feeling was still there. Interesting. Let me sort of move on here for a second. What's next for you? What are you working on now? So you've gone from stealing skulls to haunted places to the afterlives of the saints. And what's the unidentified all about? Yeah, so so this project, I think, will kind of continue a little bit in that methodology. I mean, I'm looking at conspiracy theories for sure. And, you know, everything from chemtrails to the belief that the CIA maybe invented uh, HIV and spread it among marginalized populations in the United States to, you know, UFOs and cryptids, uh, you know, cryptids being Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and, you know, other such sort of mythical beasts. And, you know, again, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's that same sort of interest I have with both stories that don't often get taken seriously, you know, like the Bigfoot hunters and the alien abductees, and, and also the way in which place and space often infect those stories. So so with both cryptids and UFOs, I, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is that these are these are sort of taking place in open rural spaces or the desert or kind of places that have been maybe forgotten by the rest of America living in suburbs and cities. And so so who knows? You know, it's it's early early stages, but you know, that's kind of where where I'm going with that. So I hopefully uh hopefully it'll it'll continue to be fun and fruitful. Well, there's no lack of conspiracy theories in <laughs> our society today. I'm sure you could come up with the... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm not hurting for subject matter. So <laughs> no, I can't imagine you would be. So, Colin, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more about your projects or, or purchase a book, how do they do that? What's the best way? So the, the books are out pretty easy to, to track down at, at bookstores and online. The, the paperback of Ghostland will be out October 3rd, I guess, maybe by the time this airs. It will already be out, so you can probably grab that wherever. Um, and um, yeah, I'm on social media. I'm, I'm online. My website is just colindickey.com and happy to talk to anybody about historic buildings, historic hauntings, ghosts they may have seen. Love to talk to everybody about it all. If they need an exorcism, can you connect? Sure, them sure. I, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So before we let you go, we ask this of everyone who comes on PreserveCast. Excited to hear your answer given the research you've done, the places you've been your favorite historic building or place? Yeah, it's hard hard to, to pick one. I mean, we could be here all day, but for some reason, you know, the one that, that keeps coming to mind is the Renaissance Center in uh, in Detroit. I don't know if that quite qualifies as historic, but, you know, close enough. I mean, the, the series of concentric cylinders that has this very retro, future, modern feel about it, even as the rest of Detroit has often changed around it. I uh, When I was researching the book, I stayed in the Renaissance Center, and I just remember sort of, walking through those kind of cylindrical open spaces, just thinking what a, what a strange and wonderful place it was to just kind of lose your mind and get lost in daydreaming. So that's my answer for today. Ask me again tomorrow. I'll give you something else. 
it's good to know. And is it haunted? We, I guess we should, we should ask. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. Oh yeah. Every, everything in Detroit is haunted depending on who you ask. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. Definitely haunted. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Colin, it's been a pleasure. We appreciate having you on and would look forward to maybe having you on when you, uh, talk more about conspiracy theories and, and their connection to place and space and buildings and all those good things. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.